The Digested Read by John Crace The Golden Bowl by Henry James The Prince had always liked his London, and, as we join him, he is conversing with his affianced bride, Maggie, daughter of the wealthy American art collector, Mr. Verva. You are truly a galantuomo, she had said. I know. With that, they had lapsed into pages of intense introspection, an introspection into the most precise nature of their feelings, feelings which would include the prince's impecunious state, a state that was of necessity the binding force between them, conferring on Maggie the advantage of European aristocracy and on the prince the endowment of new capital. They smiled at one another, a smile that lasted for at least another dozen pages, pages which induced an extreme sopa, a sopa that would in time degenerate into unconsciousness. It was on the Friday before his wedding that the prince paid a visit to the Assinghams, a couple delicately placed beneath the highest ranks of the upper classes, with whom he had been acquainted in Italy. "'Your arrival is most gracious, yet unexpected, Your Highness,' said Mrs. Assingham, curtsying before the Prince. "'For Miss Charlotte Stant is due for tea.' Miss Stant made no circumstance of thus coming upon the Prince, and for his part the Prince felt safe, safe for being so placed in the innocent coincidence of their meeting that he could interject a note of jocularity— a jocularity tempered by the remembrance of the refinement of their heightened sensibilities, such that it would pass unnoticed. Perhaps I could accompany you on an expedition to acquire a present for your bride, Charlotte inquired. This little crisis was of a great deal shorter duration than our account of it, but then it could hardly have been much longer, save that it had taken five hours, including nodding off breaks, it took to read it. Upon their departure, Mrs. Assingham appraised her husband of the situation. The Prince and Miss Stant had been intimate in Italy she said, and I do believe that if she had even had a little money, he would have bravely married beneath himself. This places me queerly with the Vervas, for perhaps I might have mentioned this fact to them previously. Up, 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 never so high, the prince walked with Charlotte around the antiquary of Bloomsbury. See in the Jew's shop a golden bowl, a golden bowl worthy of the selflessness of your bride, Charlotte said, in perfect Italian. Trust not the thieving son of Abraham, the prince replied, for the crystal bowl has a hidden fatal flaw. Overwhelmed by the symbolism, the pair continued their promenade in mute intensity, an intensity born of the superlative degree of their angularity. Mr. Adam Verver, in scrutiny monotonous, behind an iridescent cloud, patted the Principino. The Principino, who need detain us no longer, now that the passage of hymeneal time has been indicated by the arrival of issue to the Prince and Maggie, and wondered whether the actuality of his not having remarried after the death of his wife was preventing Maggie from obtaining the maximum immersion in the fact of her being married. 
I am aware it is you who are young and I who am old, he said to Charlotte. Au contraire, Charlotte answered with tortured logic, a logic in which no one but James believed. It is you who are young and I who am old. Charlotte questioned whether she was square with Mrs. Assingham, but the place of her marriage to Mr. Verver made her placement so, a placement whose matchless beauty allowed her to do nothing in life at all. Not that she had done that much previously. A placement that made her proximity to the prince an occurrence of immense naturalness, such that when Lady Castledean invited them to stay, it was only natural that they should return to London alone. You shall have whatever you want, the prince whispered to her, kissing her with passion, a passion that was almost passionless in the denseness of the prose. For a hundred and fifty long pages, Maggie considered how she was placed both in regard to the prince and to her father and Charlotte, a placement that required sentences of breathtakingly meaningless construction, a construction given over to a detailed deconstruction of every nuance in each regard, a regard to which anyone else in their right mind would not have devoted more than a second. She longed to know where she really was, yet was as yet uncertain whether the idea was, in fact, a fact. "'Your behaviour towards me is most unsettling,' Charlotte said. "'Pray tell me how we are placed.' "'We are placed where we always were.' Having determined that appearing the fool, in so far as Prince and Charlotte were concerned, was the best way of serving the princess, Mrs. Assingham was mindful of her position when Maggie summoned her to Portland Place. "'I have bought the golden bowl from the Jew, and the prince's duplicity is revealed,' the princess said. "'Not if I break it!' cried Mrs. Assingham, hurling it to the ground." At this point, the prince returned, prompting Maggie to retell the coincidence of her having bought the golden bowl and the Jew having remembered the prince and Charlotte, a coincidence no more convincing the second time around. The prince fell silent, a silence born of his never having looked a gift fortune in the mouth, and a froideur was slowly initiated in his dealings with Charlotte. Mr. Verver and I are returning to America, Charlotte announced a month later. Charlotte always was a stupid woman, the prince said, holding the princess's hand. What was all that about? inquired Mrs. Assingham. A load of golden bowlocks, her husband grunted. <laughs> 